Holy Father, as Elizabeth just sang that moving confession, we are gathered in the presence of one we know is Son of God and Son of Man. The living Christ. What does His radical vision mean for us in this voyage that has just begun? Teach us through Holy Scripture on this New Year's Day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I became acquainted this month with the poetry of an American writer and poet named W.S. Merwin, who in 2009 won the coveted Pulitzer Prize for one of the collections of his poetry. I want to read you a poem he wrote. It's entitled, For the Anniversary of My Death. It is a provocative piece. I invite you to follow along. If we can get the microphone down just a tad, we're getting just, a, just a more than we need. I'll put the words on the screen for you. You can follow along. For the anniversary of my death, every year without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out tireless traveler like the beam of a lightless star. Then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment, surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men, as today riding after three days of rain, hearing the wren sing and the falling cease and bowing not knowing to what. Did you catch that? Every year without knowing it, I have passed the day. What day? The anniversary. The anniversary of my death. Through a provocative twist of the word anniversary, Merwin describes our death date in advance of the actual event. So it would work like this. If it has been decreed that one day I will die on September 12th, then it is possible that in this new year, it's September 12, will be the end of my life. And if not this new year, then some subsequent new year will bring the September 12, that is my death date. When I read that line for the first time, I tell you what, it was just like a little jolt. Because you know what it means. It means I have been passing the anniversary of my death over and over and over again. I'm not going to tell you how many times. I've come to that date. Heaven knows it's my date. One day, I will come to that day and I will never in this life again pass that day. That will be the date at last. So how then shall we live in this new year? Should we not embrace a radical vision of Christ, such as the one we now examine together?
Open your Bible with me, please, to the the book of Philippians. That little prison epistle composed in jail. Mamertine dungeon in the city of Rome. Philippians chapter 2, and a stiff word of courage and hope for this new year. And I've got to be honest with you, this little passage, I have consistently over the years only focused on its first half. There's enough good news in that first half. And I have simply ignored the second half and heretofore missed the profound truth Paul is tucked away in what many regard as an ancient first century Christian hymn. Philippians chapter 2. You didn't bring a Bible. Grab the Pew Bible in front of you. It'll be the same translation I have here, the New King James Version. It'll be page 790 in your Pew Bible. Paul's talking to the, uh, the, his Christian friends in Philippi. He's asking them to be humble to each other. He's asking them to get off of this egotistical kick about self-exaltation. That's why he says in verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. It goes on to verse 4. Listen, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. He says, I'm going to illustrate this to you. Here's how it works. Now come the beloved words, whose first half we have often gone to personally or in a preaching like this. Verse 5, Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Paul's normal sequence for the name is Jesus Christ. But there are select instances in his writings where he reverses his sequence, and instead of Jesus Christ, he speaks of Christ Jesus. Scholars believe that he no doubt is seeking to accentuate the divinity Son of God, Elizabeth sang a moment ago. Son of God, Son of Man. He wants to accentuate the Son of Godness of the Eternal One. Verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, morphe, morphed. We talk about morphing into something. He's in the morphed form of Almighty God, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, Really, a more accurate translation would be, did not consider it something to be clutched, something to be grasped. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Do you know whom we have come to worship today? Do you understand who He is? He did not consider it robbery, something to be grasped, to be, to be equal with God. But, verse 7, made Himself of no reputation. A lot of English words for one little Greek word that means He emptied Himself. All the divine prerogatives that he had, he emptied himself, made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself, taking the form, morphed, morphed into a bondservant or a slave, and coming in the likeness, the schema, you know, a schematic. What's a schematic? Was well, a little blueprint. This is what I expect to find. He comes in the schematic of humanity. He's not. He's not only human. He's not exactly like you and me. How can he be? He's God and man. But he has a schema. He has a schematic. Looks just like us. He came in the likeness of men. I carry around in the back of my Bible words written a century ago that remind me, because I need to be reminded, of the 
infinite self-empty that Christ experienced to make verses 6 and 7 possible. And I'll put these words on the screen for you. They're from uh, an old magazine called The Review and Herald. Listen to this. I carry these words in every Bible that I have. The same devotion, the same self-sacrifice, the same subjection to the claims of the Word of God that were manifest in the life of Christ. Here's what's so radical about this vision. Must be seen in the lives of His servants. That would be His children, you and me. Now, notice this. I call these the three leavings, and I put the numbers in. He, number one, He left His home of security and peace. In order for Philippians 5, uh, 2, rather, verses 6 and 7 to come true, he had to, number one, leave his home of security and peace. Some of us like our domicile. We're rather glad to live in it. It's, it's the little bit of security on earth we have. He left it. His domicile. Number one, he left his home of security and peace. Number two, he left the glory that he had with the Father. He was the supreme one. He left it. He just, he just walked away from it. He left the glory that he had with the Father. Number three, he left his position on the throne of the universe. Highest being. You can't get higher than God. He left his position on the throne of the universe. Look at that next line. He went forth, a suffering, tempted man. Went forth in solitude to sow in tears, to water with his blood the seed of life for a lost world. You know, I mentioned it last week on our Christmas Day homily. How easily we crassly reduce the price of the incarnation to Christ having to give up celestial breakfasts in bed and 24-hour angelic maid service. Well, oh boy, he, he's missing those accoutrements of his prerogatives. I tell you what, the three leavings remind us of the infinite emptying that he had to experience to come down to this planet. Pick it up in verse 8. And having come down here, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. I tell you what, if he had lived to be 95 and had died in, a, in Caesar's bed itself, it would have been infinite humiliation enough. But no, 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 Paul says no, no. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Paul himself knows the irony of what he has just written. Because even as the words are scratched on the parchment, Paul knows that Christ died a death that he would never have to die as a Roman citizen. All of Paul's Roman readers in Philippi know, hey, it'll never happen to me. It can't happen to a Roman, only to a slave, only to a, to a, to a non-Roman can crucifixion be exacted and inflicted. It's a bit of irony that Paul scribbles down. And by the way, even to death on a cross, which I as a Roman will never have to experience. Wow. The God of the universe. And usually that's where I, I just put that. Hey, let us meditate on this. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if we paused right here and we said this was our New Year Day meditation, that the homily would be sufficient enough. Stopping right here. There's plenty of grist. Plenty of grist in what we've just read. I think of the words of Isaac Watts, who, wrote, who composed the hymn, by the way, based on uh, Psalm 90 that we sang just a moment ago. Our, oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Isaac Watts composed those words, but he also composed these. When I survey the wondrous cross, 
on which the Prince of Glory died. Now watch this. My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. As our ages, pride and self-worship cannot flourish in the heart that keeps fresh in memory the scenes of Calvary. You came to the right place on New Year's Day. We're going to the foot of the cross today. This was the place to have come. And I'm so glad you did. Poor contempt. In the words of Job, I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Poor contempt on all my pride. When I see the infinite, self-empty, the God of the universe to save the likes of me. And here's where I stop. Whoa, hallelujah. It all climaxed on the rood, that old English word for the cross. God save this world. Amen. But in prematurely stopping our meditation in verse 8, I have missed the very secret to the Apostle Paul's triumphant fate and indomitable courage. So we've got to read on. This is New Year's. We've got to read on. There's a second stanza to that hymn. Verse 9. Therefore, based on this infinite self-emptying, therefore, God also has highly exalted him. Now, the New King James, is that really past tense? Is that no, no, that's that the, the Greek is clearly it is past, a point in the past. This has already happened. As I write these words, God has already exalted him. That's the point he's making. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. By the way, that's just one word in the Greek. Hupo. Upsao. Hupo. And whence comes our word hyper. What's hyper? Ever seen a hyperactive kid? That's hyper. Hyper is over the top. Hyper is above and beyond. So when Paul says he has been hyper exalted, he's not just talking about exaltation. He's talking about supreme majesty exaltation. He's been hyper exalted to the top of the, of the universe. Therefore... God also has hyper-exalted Him and given Him the name that is above every name. And we're not sure what this name is. is. Is this the forbidden name that the Jews were not allowed to speak? Don't ever say that name. Is that the name? Is this the name that the psalmist referred to? Oh, bless the name of the Lord. Bless the name. Is this the name? Or is this the name Jesus? There's no other name given among heaven, given among men under heaven, whereby we must be saved. What's the name? We don't know. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, which is above every name. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, there it is, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. Even the dead one day will bow. Even the dead one day will bow at the name of Jesus. Those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and at That name, every tongue, should confess, verse 11, that Jesus Christ, he reverses the order again. Christ Jesus in the beginning, Jesus Christ at the end. I'm back to the Savior now. Jesus Christ. That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's the question. What does this hyper-exaltation of Christ mean for us? What does this hyper-exaltation mean? 
we have to remind ourselves that Paul never knew the beloved Jesus of Nazareth. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, Paul never knew him. The one that Peter, John, and James all loved, Paul never knew him. Never saw him, never met him, never talked to him. The only Christ Paul has ever known in his life is the hyper-exalted Christ, the glorified one, who I remind you, in a very painful and personal encounter, showed up to Paul on that Damascus road. Isn't that right? The hyper-exalted Christ, undiminished, unfiltered. I'm no Jesus of Nazareth now. I am back on the throne of the universe. And Paul collapses to the ground. Saul! Saul! Why are you persecuting me? Isn't it painful to kick against the thorns? Who are you, my Lord? What is it you want from me? I am Jesus. And it will be told you what to do. F.F. Bruce. Fascinating. Now listen to this. F.F. Bruce. In his marvelous book that I'm still working my way through over the holiday. The title of the book. Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free. F.F. Bruce believes, contends, that from that single vision, that single personal encounter with the glorified, hyper-exalted Christ, Paul received his entire theology and the complete script to his life that would remain. All of it in that blinding flash of a moment. You say, oh, that's not impossible. Oh, that's not possible. That's just a few seconds. Look, if God does not travel parallel to human time, but travels instead perpendicular to human time, He can take a billion years in one second. He can take a billion years in one second at His leisure. So F.F. Bruce could be true. Could be right. That everything Paul would know of Christ, in that encounter. By the way, it's the glorified Christ, not Jesus of Nazareth. This is the hyper-exalted one. Let me put Bruce's uh, words on the screen for you. Paul fed off this life-altering revelation of the glorified Christ for the, for the rest of his life. Let's put F.F. F. Bruce up here. Paul claimed a direct and profound personal acquaintance. And by the way, you don't need F.F. F. Bruce to tell you. Just read the Pauline epistles. This is more than clear. Paul claimed a direct and profound personal acquaintance with the exalted Christ. He makes little attempt to describe the form in which the exalted Christ appeared to him on the Damascus Road, perhaps because words were inadequate for the purpose. Radiant light is the outstanding feature of the appearance as Paul recalls it. And in all three records of the incident in Acts, it is made fairly clear that in that light, the risen Christ appeared to him. He saw the face of the hyper-exalted Christ wreathed in the glory of the sun, searing his vision for the rest of his life. He saw that face so that one day he would write to the Corinthian church. Remember this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. But we see the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus. Paul saw that light. He saw it. It was never, ever the same again, ever. If only you and I could see that light. If only you and I could gaze into the face of the hyper-exalted Christ, we would never be the same again either. 
You say, Dwight, I want to see that. I want that vision. We can have it. We can have it. We are reading the grist for that vision right here. Now, we don't need to ask for a theophany. You know what a theophany is? The appearance of God on earth. We don't need, we don't need a theophany. No, we can ask for a fresh, deepening, personal experiencing of the hyper-exalted Christ in the new year. God, just give me this radical vision of the Christ. What is at the heart of this radical vision? Now, one more line from Bruce. Then the point has been made. I put it on the screen for you. This is F.F. Bruce again. The infirmities and weaknesses that Paul suffered, all right, constantly reminded him not so much of his own inadequacy as of the, and I love this, the total adequacy of Christ. The total adequacy of Christ. In whom? When Paul was personally most weak, he knew himself to be most strong. Isn't that something? When he was the weakest, he was the strongest. The total adequacy. The total adequacy of Christ. There it is. The total adequacy of Christ. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. New Year's Day. I must confess that it has been my unfortunate modus operandi, my style of relating to life, and that is to focus on my personal inadequacies. I have a slew of inadequacies. My wife knows them. My best of friends know them. God knows them. Sometimes I admit some of them to Him, and I keep some of them back, thinking He'll never know if I don't tell Him. Which is, of course, the most foolish human response to the Supreme One. Philip Yancey makes the point, and he does it so well in that book, uh, Prayer Does It Really Matter. Yancey says, listen, God who reads your mind and heart in His name, why would you hide from Him what you don't want Him to know? He already knows it and loves you anyway. So let it out. Tell him who you are. But see, that's been my problem. I have focused on my inadequacies and not his total adequacy. I've focused on my weaknesses. And therein lies my tactical mistake. I have utterly neglected the total adequacy of Christ. And I have to repeat myself here. Remember, he is not the gentle Jesus, meek and mild now. He will never be that again. It's over. You had to have been living 2,000 years ago to see that Jesus. He will never be that again. You say, oh, Dwight, but everybody that knew him back then knows him that way now. No, no, no. When he shows up to John, who was the closest human being he ever was on this planet, isn't, isn't John the John boy? Wasn't he the closest with John boy? Yes, he was. When he shows up to John boy, turned 90 years old on the Isle of Patmos, undiminished, unfiltered, and John falls over dead. Isn't that right? Jesus has to reach out. The exalted, hyper-exalted Christ reaches out His right hand. Revelation 1 tells us. He said, hey, John. John. It's me. Do not be afraid. I'm the A and the Z. I'm the first and the last. I was dead, but I'm alive. Get up. I have something to say to you. He never shows up again. Ever. And by the way, that ought to be a clue. If ever Jesus shows up on this planet as the Jesus of Nazareth, it won't be the Jesus of Nazareth. It'll be an imposter, trust me. There is the brilliance of the sun that cannot be that cannot be counterfeited. The brilliance of a noonday sun. I suppose it could be counterfeited if you were desperate enough. 
Ah, the total adequacy of Christ. Don't you suppose, ladies and gentlemen, He is utterly adequate for our new year? The one who created this universe, and by the way, last Sabbath in our Christmas homily, we found out there's not a universe. According to the M theory of physicists, there are multiverses up to 10 to the 500 multiverses. Created them all. Himself. Don't you suppose He's big enough to handle what may come to you and me this year? Let me end with this. You think about it. For this Christ that we have come to worship on this first day of this new year. For this Christ, there is no future too intimidating. Some of you are facing a future that you already know. You know what's going to happen in a few days. You know what's going to happen in a few weeks. You already know the future. There is no, for this Christ, there is no future too intimidating. It's, it's possible we all face a very uncertain future even this year. It's possible. But for you, my friend, you who already know, for you, the glorified Christ has the total adequacy that you must tap into. Pray to the glorified Christ. Quit praying to the Jesus of Nazareth. Pray to the glorified one. What does Paul say? Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things. He's talking about total adequacy. There it is. I can do all things through the hyper-exalted and glorified Christ who strengthens me. Pray to Him. You're facing an uncertain future. Good news. There is no future too intimidating for the exalted, hyper-exalted Christ. Number two, there is no weakness too devastating for the hyper-exalted Christ. Some of us have weaknesses that we, that we crumble before. Let me, let me put F.F. F. Bruce back here. We read it just a moment ago. The infirmities and weaknesses that Paul suffered constantly reminded him not so much of his own inadequacy as of the total adequacy of Christ in whom when he was personally most weak, he knew himself to be most strong. That's why, look, look, look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul can exclaim, I have learned that through Christ, the hyper-exalted Christ's strength, I have learned that His strength is made perfect in my weakness. And so most gladly will I boast in my weaknesses, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Quit apologizing and begging God to take your weaknesses away, and instead, like Paul, glory in them. For in that weakness, he is totally adequate, and he'll be glorified. Remember, Paul begged three times, take this weakness away. Three times, I'm begging you, take it away. I'm not taking it away. I'm glorified in your weakness. Stay weak. With this hyper-exalted Christ, there's no future too intimidating. There's no weakness too devastating. Number three, there's no inadequacy too overwhelming. And that apparently includes financial inadequacy. There's some of you looking at a very uncertain future financially. You know what's left. You've done the arithmetic. You are sure that there is not enough to stretch very far into this new year. The total adequacy of Christ means that He knows your bankruptcy. He knows your emptiness financially. And He can meet those needs. Same prison epistle. Look at this. Philippians 4.19 And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Let me hear an amen on this New Year's Day for that. Amen. He has what you need. 
He is totally adequate. We have got to shift the paradigm and pray to the totally adequate Christ, the hyper-exalted Lord of the universe. <laughs> Look, if he has 10 to the 500th multiverses in his hand, do you suppose he has a little bit of extra that could go around for you and me? Please. My God shall supply all your need. And finally, for this Christ, there is no past to crippling. Have you been following this Billy the Kid saga? Have you, you haven't been following this? You know, Billy, you know who Billy the Kid is? I just did a little bit of Wikipedia study on him uh, to get ready for this. Some think he was Irish and born in New York City. Absentee father. Grew up with a mother trying desperately to keep the boy fed. Billy the Kid, probably born Henry McCarty. Same spelling, by the way, as Skip McCarty. <laughs> so I've got to talk to Skip sometime when, we have, when we're alone. All right. But, it, but he, he, he fell in. Let me put a picture of him on the screen, by the way. Just a kid. Died at 22. Died at 22. Look at that baby face. Billy the Kid. Went by William Bonney. That was one of his aliases. William Bonney. Legend then began to call him Billy the Kid. Got involved first with petty crime. That's all often happens with our children, doesn't it? A little petty crime here, a little petty crime there, and it escalates. You fall into the wrong crowd. They begin to draw you in. You drag way beyond where you want to go. Robbery, killing. Died in a hail of bullets. July 14, 1881. Let's put a wanted poster up there. I mean, they wanted him. They wanted him. This is Billy the Kid. So anyway, some long-distant relative has been making a push publicly with the governor of the New Mexico, Bill Richardson, whose last day in office was yesterday, to please pardon Billy the Kid. Just pardon him. The provincial governor at the time apparently had promised him, I'll pardon you if you testify against so-and-so, and never got the pardon, and went and killed more people, and so a sad story. So the whole world is watching because the Europe got into this, the Asia got into it, everybody's watching. Billy the Kid, will he get pardoned? They, they, the, the governor started a website soliciting public opinion, but in the end it didn't matter. Yesterday, Governor, governor Bill Richardson returned the verdict. There will be no pardon for Billy the Kid. Billy the Kid's past is too crippling. It's too bad. It's too guilty. Can't pardon him. Boy, I tell you what. I am very thankful Bill Richardson is not the savior of this world. Paul describes the savior, the hyper-exalted Christ who died for us with these words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world. He's reversed the name again, so he wants you to see that this is God himself who came. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I love this in the NIV. Of whom I am the worst. I'm the worst. And I got saved. And if I'm the worst and I got saved, then you can get saved. There is no past too crippling. I don't care what you did in 2010. I don't care what I did in 2010. 2011 is a brand new start for a brand new chapter with a brand new Walk with the hyper-exalted Christ. That's good news, ladies and gentlemen. That's about, the news doesn't get any better than that. 
which is why Oswald Chambers, in that little classic, My Utmost for His Highest, he ends. These are the last words. I read this book every, every year. I start on January today. Oswald Chambers. Let the past... Oh, this is good. Let the past sleep. But let it sleep on the bosom of Christ. Leave the irreparable. You can't fix it. You can't fix it. It's gone. It's over. Give it up. Leave the irreparable past in His hands and step out into the irresistible future with Him. Isn't that great? That's what we needed on New Year's Day. We came to the right place. We came to the foot of the cross today. You could have been anywhere you wanted to be, but today you came to the foot of the cross. And in a moment, we're going to take the symbols of His victory where He pardons us what Billy the Kid never got in this life. We get, we get from the glorified Christ. We will take the symbols in our hands. This is the most meaningful Christian worship act that you can experience. It is the most tangible reminder of the total adequacy. The total adequacy of Christ. Put that on the screen one more time, please. The total adequacy of Christ. When you take this cup and you eat this bread, the total adequacy of Christ. You can't have picked a more significant way to begin this new year. And I'm glad you're here. Stay. Take the symbols and let your life let your life be ignited this first day of our new journey. Let us pray. Oh God, the total adequacy of Christ, forgive us. We only sang half the song. One stanza of a two stanza hymn. We do revel in the glory of Calvary. That's why we've come. But the good news is that the one who died for us, who took on the form of humanity so that He might die and save us. The good news is, Holy Father, the glorified Christ is totally adequate for everything that will come our way this new year. So as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, oh, permeate us to the very vessels of our being with His adequacy. Today and today and today until He returns. In His name we pray. Amen.